Welcome to the Aviation Podcast. My name is Dave, a commercial pilot with a Group 1 IFR and current CFI candidate. On today's episode, WestJet, JetBlue and Bamboo Airways secure London Heathrow slots. St. Hubert Airport has a legal victory against Kappa L. And the Gimli Glider. If you've never heard of it, this is a fantastic story uh, that you won't want to miss. So thanks for stopping by for episode five of the Aviation Podcast. What's up, everybody? How's it going? My name is Dave, and thank you for tuning in to episode five of the Aviation Podcast. Today, we've got, yeah, some really cool stories, a couple short ones, but the Gimli Glider, a really cool story that I actually didn't know all that much about. And so I want to read an article uh, verbatim to you about the Gimli Glider. And there's a lot that you could take away from it. It's a ap- real application of a side slip. Uh, correction, actually a forward slip, um, side slip, forward slip, guys, make sure you know the difference. If you're going for your eh, PPL, they'll probably ask, but CPL, I was asked on my CPL, uh, what's the difference? Are we doing a side slip right now or a forward slip? Know the difference. Uh, but this was a forward slip to landing, uh, in a fuel emergency, a fuel starvation emergency that is. So fantastic Canadian aviation story of two very great pilots who put this uh, airplane on the ground safely and saved everybody's life. So before we go into the news articles, did anybody get a chance to kind of go over the VORs? Like, what's your input on a VOR? What do you think? Think VORs are here to stay? Think they're going to go by the wayside? Remember, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or you'd like to answer that question and discuss it with me, the aviation podcast at gmail.com is where you can reach me. And again, the aviation, aviation spelled E H. So the aviation podcast, gmail.com. So WestJet, JetBlue, Bamboo Airways secure London Heathrow slots. On Friday, the Airports Council of the United Kingdom released the latest slot allocation report on its airports, including London Heathrow. The report listed multiple airlines that secured slots, including JetBlue, Bamboo Airways, and WestJet, amid a slowdown in air traffic at the busiest airport in the United Kingdom. WestJet obtained slots to London Heathrow for daily flights to Calgary and Vancouver. The Canadian carrier was allocated 732 slots, allowing it to start services as soon as May 1st. Currently, the low-cost Canadian airline has slots at neighbouring Gatwick that allow four daily services a day to Calgary, Halifax, Toronto and Vancouver. It is unknown whether WestJet will utilise Heathrow instead of Gatwick. The flights will operate from Terminal 2, From Heathrow's terminal finder tool, it displays a slot for a 9 a.m. arrival and 11 a.m. departure. For Vancouver service, an 11.20 a.m. arrival and 1.20 departure for Calgary service. Tentatively, WestJet uh, has filled a return to London. uh, Correction, tentatively WestJet has filed a return to London at the end of May as the airline plans its return to transatlantic service when Canada borders reopen. 
Last year, WestJet assumed three times weekly service from Calgary to London Gatwick before cancelling it due to the closure of the Canadian borders. These flights will operate using WestJet's Boeing 787-900 featuring 320 seats, including 16 business class seats in a two, uh, correction, one to one configuration, 28 premium class seats in a two, three, two configuration and 276 economy class seats in a three, three, three configuration. Now, if you want to check out the rest of this article and see what is in store for JetBlue and Bamboo Airways, check it out on the Canadian aviation news.com. Next up, St. Hubert, a legal victory for aviation. This was out of the Copa magazine, a fantastic article. In the request of the members of the uh, CAPL, the CAPL, that is a a committee, just so you know, it's an aircraft anti-pollution committee. Uh, So in request of them, the members of CAPL called for restrictions on hours of operation to apply to heavy commercial aircraft such as Airbus A320s and Boeing 737s as well as the establishment of limits on the duration and length sound intensity of the devices. In addition, the Kappa uh, L, or Kappa, however you want to say it, required that all aircraft landing or taking off from CYHU, which is St. Hubert, be equipped with silencers. The judge stressed that such noise mitigation measures are not the responsibility of the Superior Court of Quebec, but of the Minister of Transport, since aviation is under exclusivity, exclusively federal jurisdiction, dividing Canadian airspace with different rules, especially for a satellite airport in Canadian metropolis, does not make sense and could lead to security issues or interpretation, or, or sorry, our interp- their interpretation. Uh, the case was thus declared non um uh, no contest, but there's, uh, that's not all compensation was actually requested in favor for each of the members of Kappa L without, however, designated them judge, uh, Castogne, And I probably said that wrong, uh, emphasized the illegality and boundless recklessness of this request. In addition, in his decision, the judge underlined the quarrelsome nature of the members of Kappa L. This led, he said, to abusive legal action on their part. The label of quarrelsome will likely follow the Kappa L in any subsequent legal proceedings since the Quebec legal system will potentially restrict their access to the courts. In recent years, airmen across the country have wondered what is happening in Quebec with legal and administrative proceedings involving several aerodromes in the province for about 10 years. Unfortunately, there is no answer to this question. The bright side of this decade in the courts has been the creation of a solid body of case law that can be used in other cases involving aviation across the country. We can only thank all of these aviators and their resilience in the face of um, opponents, even if it sometimes needed to be quarrelsome. So this is a big win for aviation because this is just showing essentially you can't just bind a group together to try to shut down aviation because you don't like it. And yeah, is there environmental impacts to flying? Of course there is. But it's one of those things that we can't just get rid of aviation. It really supports the economy worldwide, not just here, not just in the United States, 
Canada or, or sorry, um, in the, in Europe, anything, it also brings people to third world countries that rely on travel and tourism to support their economy. So this is big. Uh, that coming in would totally change the dynamics. Uh, I don't know if you've been to St. Hubert, if you're from Ontario or Quebec. Uh, actually, that was where I did my CPL cross-country flight to. It's a fantastic airport. I really liked it. And I went and fueled up. I cannot, I can't recall what it was, but it was at the far west, northwest corner. Um, it was a great little airline that fueled me up for really cheap. They were great. It's awesome. But if you haven't had the chance, I go out to St. Hubert. It is a fantastic airport. So with that, that's it for the news this week. And I wanted to do something different. So the story of the Gimli Glider. I wanted to go through this. This was actually something that I didn't know too much about. And I went had a discussion with my flight instructor who's doing my CFI. And we got discussing the Gimli Glider because one of the things that we uh, were working on was slips. And he said, this is a fantastic story to talk about with your students because it's a slip at uh, the most practical uh, use of a slip where you would use it in the real world. Cause that's always the number one question. Okay. Yeah. It's cool that we're learning this. Why are we learning stalls? I'm not going to let my aircraft stall or why are we doing spins? I'm not going to let myself get into a spin. Right. So this is a, a story and now it is going to be a bit, it's going to be uh that's a, it's, it's quite a bit of a read here, but it's very interesting. We're going to go through it, so bear with me, and I hope you enjoy it. This is the Gimli Glider, which is Air Canada Flight 143 in a Boeing 767-233. Air Canada Flight 143 was a Canadian scheduled domestic passenger flight between Montreal and Edmonton that ran out of fuel on July 23rd, 1983, at an altitude of 41,000 feet or flight level 410. This was midway through the flight. The flight crew successfully glided the Boeing 767 to an emergency landing at a formal Royal Canadian Air Force base in Gimli, Manitoba that had been converted into a motor racing track. This unusual aviation incident earned the aircraft the nickname Gimli Glider. The accident is commonly blamed on mistaking pounds for kilograms, which resulted in the aircraft carrying only 45% of its required fuel load. However, the unit's air was the last in the series of failures that aligned in the Swiss cheese model to the cause of the accident. <clears throat> The Boeing 767 had a fuel quantity indication system, FQIS, with two redundant channels, but a design flaw caused it to fail if only one channel failed. This caused a much higher failure rate than expected. The FQIS on the aircraft had failed, and Air Canada's only spare FQIS had also failed. A technician applied a temporary workaround to the aircraft's FQIS and logged the repair but another technician misunderstood the logbook entry and undid the repair. The, the Boeing 767 may not have been be flown with inoperative fuel gauges, but a miscommunication led the flight crew to fly using only a dipstick measurement of the fuel tanks. The crew needed to enter the fuel quantity into the flight computer into kilograms, but they mistakenly did the calculation with the density of jet fuel in pounds per liter. 
the aircraft ran out of fuel halfway to Edmonton, where Air Canada maintenance staff were waiting to install working FQIS that they had borrowed from another airline. The Board of Inquiry found fault with Air Canada's procedures, trainings, and manuals. It recommended the adoption of fueling procedures and safety measures that were already being used by U.S. and European airlines. The board also recommended the immediate conversion of all Air Canada aircraft from Imperial units to metric units, since a mixed fleet was more dangerous than an all-Imperial or all-metric fleet. On July 22, 1983, Air Canada Boeing 737, with the call sign or registration of Charlie Gulf Alpha Uniform November, underwent routine checks in Edmonton. The technician found a defective fuel quantity indication system, so he disabled the defective channel and made an entry in the logbook. The next morning, Captain John Weir and co-pilot Captain Donald Johnson were told about the problem. Since the FQIS was operating on a single channel, a dipstick reading was taken to obtain a second measurement of fuel quantity. Weir converted the dipstick reading from centimeters to liters to kilograms, finding that it agreed with the FQIS. The plane flew to Toronto and then Montreal without incident. At Montreal, Captain Bob Pearson and First Officer Maurice Quintel took over the airplane for Flight 143 to Ottawa and Edmonton. During the handover, we are told Pearson that there was a problem with the FQIS and Pearson decided to take enough fuel to fly to Edmonton without refueling in Ottawa. Meanwhile, an avionics technician had entered the cockpit and read the logbook. While waiting for the fuel truck, he, he enabled the defective channel and performed an FQIS S self-test. Distracted by the arrival of the fuel truck, he left the channel enabled and the FQIS failed the self-test. Pearson entered the cockpit to find the FQIS blank as he expected. After taking a dipstick measurement, Pearson converted the reading from centimeters to liters to kilograms. However, he did this calculation with the density of jet fuel in pounds per liter instead of kilograms per liter. Since the FQIS was not operational, he entered the reading into the flight management computer, the FMC, which tracked the amount of fuel remaining in kilograms. The airplane flew to Ottawa without incident, where another dripstick uh, drip measurement was taken and converted using density in pounds per liter. Since the aircraft appeared to have enough fuel to reach Edmonton, no fuel was loaded at Ottawa. Running out of fuel. While Flight 143 was cruising over Red Lake, Ontario at 41,000 feet, shortly after 8 p.m. Uh, CDT, the aircraft's cockpit warning system sounded, indicating a fuel pressure problem on the aircraft's left side. Assuming that a fuel pump had failed, the pilots turned off the alarm. Knowing that the engine could be gravity-fed in level flight, a few seconds later, the fuel pressure alarm also sounded for the right engine. This prompted the pilots to divert to Winnipeg. Within seconds, the left engine failed and the pilots began preparing for a single-engine landing. As they communicated their intentions with controllers in Winnipeg and tried to restart the left engine, the cockpit warning system sounded again with the all-engines-out sound, a sharp bong that no one in the cockpit could recall having heard before. Seconds later, the right-side engine also stopped and the 767 lost all power. Flying with all engines out was something that was never expected to occur, so it had never been covered in training. In se the 767 
was one of the first airlines to include an electronic flight instrument, instrument system, which operated on the electricity generated by the aircraft's jet engines. With both, engine, both engines stopped, the system went dead and most of the screens went blank, leaving only a few basic battery-powered emergency flight instruments. While these provided sufficient information to land the aircraft, the backup instruments did not include a vertical speed indicator that could be used to determine how far the aircraft could glide. On the Boeing 767, the control surfaces are so large that the pilots cannot move them with muscle power alone. Instead, hydraulic systems are used to multiply the forces applied by the pilots. Since the engine's power supply for hydraulic systems, the aircraft was designed with a ram air turbine, or a RAT a backup generator that swings out from the compartment uh, it's underneath and converts the air flowing past the airplane in rotational movement. There are numerous designs of ram air turbines. The version on the 767 resembles a two-blade propeller similar in size of an ultralight aircraft and it directly drives a hydraulic pump. At the Gimli pilot's um, so, correction, as the Gimli pilots performed a partial side slip maneuver, a forward slip, to reduce the altitude prior to landing, the disturbed airflow past the ram turbine meant a decrease in hydraulic pressure available, and they were surprised to find that the aircraft slow, was slow to respond when straightening after the forward slip. Landing at Gimli. In line with their planned diversion to Winnipeg, the pilots were already descending through 35,000 feet, with the second engine shut down. They immediately searched the emergency checklist for the section on flying the aircraft with both engines out, only to find that no such thing existed. Captain Pearson was an experienced glider pilot, so he was familiar with the flying techniques almost never used in commercial flight. To have the maximum range and therefore the largest chance of possible landing sites, he needed to fly the 767 at the optimum glide speed. This, Making his best guess as to what this speed is on the 767, he flew the aircraft at 220 knots, which converts to 410 kilometers per hour or 250 miles per hour. The first officer, Maurice Quintal, began to calculate whether they could reach Winnipeg. He used the altitude from the mechanical backup instruments while the distance traveled was supplied by the air traffic controllers in Winnipeg, measured by the aircraft's radar echo observed at Winnipeg. In 10 nautical miles, the aircraft lost 5,000 feet, giving a glide ratio of approximately 12 to 1. Uh, dedicated glider planes, guys, uh, reach ratios of about 50 to 1 or 70 to 1, just for your reference. And a uh, Cessna 172 is about 9 to 1. At this point, Quintel pr uh, proposed landing at the former RCAF station Gimli, a closed Air Force base where he had once served as a pilot for the RCAF. Unbeknownst to Quintel, the air traffic controller, part of the facility, had been converted to a racetrack complex uh, known as the Gimli Motorsports Park. It included a, rate, a road race course, a go-kart track, and a drag strip. A Canadian Automobile Sports Club sanctioned sports car race hosted by the Winnipeg Sports Car Club was underway at the time of the incident. Uh, and the area surrounding uh, the decommissioned runway was full of cars and campers. Part of the decommissioned runway was being used to stage the race. 
Without main power, the pilots used a gravity drop, which allows gravity to lower the landing gear and lock it into place. The main gear locked into position, but the nose wheel did not. This later turned out to be advantageous. As the aircraft slowed on approach to landing, the reduced power generated by the ram air turbine rendered the aircraft increasingly difficult to control. As the time drew near the runway, it became apparent that the aircraft was coming in too high and fast, raising the danger of the 767 running out of runway before it could be stopped. The lack of hydraulic pressure prevented flap slash slat ex extension that would have, under normal landing conditions, reduced the stall speed of the aircraft and increased the lift coefficient of the wings to allow the airliner to be slowed for a safe landing. The pilots briefly considered a 360-degree turn to reduce speed and altitude, but they decided that they did not have enough altitude for the maneuver. Pearson decided to execute a side slip, which was more, I, I believe, a, a forward slip. Uh, this article may have it wrong. Uh, to increase the drag and lose altitude. This maneuver, performed by crossing the controls, applying rudder in one direction, ailerons in the other, is commonly used in gliders and light aircraft to descend more quickly without losing forward speed. But it's practically never executed in large jet airlines outside of a rare circumstance like those of this flight. Complicating matters, matters yet further was the fact that both of its engines were out. The plane made virtually no noise during its approach. People on the ground thus had no advance warning of the impromptu landing and little time to flee. As the gliding airplane crossed on the decommissioned runway, the pilots noticed that there were two boys riding bicycles within a thousand feet of the projected point of impact. Captain Pearson would later remark that the boys were so close that he could see the looks of sheer terror on their faces as they realized that a large passenger-laden aircraft was bearing down on them. The 767-200, the aircraft type in question, was only classed as a medium-sized airliner. However, when empty, still weighed roughly 80 tons without passengers. Two factors here helped advert disaster. The failure of the front landing gear to lock into position during the gravity drop. The presence of a guardrail that had been installed along the center of the uh, repurposed runway to facilitate it as a drag racetrack. As soon as the wheels touched down on the runway, Pearson braked hard, skidding and promptly blowing out the two tires of the aircraft. The unlocked nose wheel collapsed and was forced back into its well, causing the aircraft's nose to slam, bounce off, and then scrape along the ground. This additional friction helped to slow the airplane and keep it from crashing into the crowd surrounding the runway. After the airliner had touched down, the nose began to scrape along the guardrail in the center of the racetrack, creating additional friction drag that con uh, contributed to plane's deceleration. Pearson applied extra right brake, which caused the main landing gear to straddle the guardrail. Air Canada Flight 143 came to a final stop on the ground 17 minutes after running out of fuel. There were no serious injuries among the 61 passengers on board uh, or on the ground. And as the aircraft's nose had collapsed onto the ground, its tail was elevated and there were some minor injuries when passengers exited the aircraft via the rear slides, which were not long enough to sufficiently accommodate the increased height. A minor fire in the nose area was extinguished by racers and course workers equipped with portable fire extinguishers. So this is the story of the Gimli glider. I hope you enjoyed it. It is such a cool 
story about the use of a side slip or forward slip in real world and commercial aviation that saved many, many, many people. And who knows, if they would have just went down, they could have killed more from collateral damage. These pilots did a fantastic job with what they had uh, with their resources, having no emergency checklist, and going back to their training. To me, what this tells me, even though you're flying a Cessna 172, 152, or in my case, Diamond Aircraft, always remember that these are skills that you are learning for a reason. In Canada, Transport Canada didn't put these exercises into place for a PPL, a CPL, just for fun. There's a reason for it. Not only is it going to teach you good stick and rudder skills, it's also going to teach you good decision making and confidence. So if you haven't done things like slips, like stalls, emergency procedures, now's the time to do it. What I was told when I was uh, first starting out my PPL, I had a class one instructor come up to me while I was waiting for my instructor to finish his flight. And he goes, is your airplane outside? I said, yeah, it's, it's outside. Um, have you checked it yet? I said, well, yes, I have. I've checked it. I'm just waiting for my instructor now. He says, good. Now go sit in it and run emergency procedures until your, until your instructor comes. And I was like, oh, well, this wasn't even my instructor. So do I listen to him? Of course. It's a class one instructor. So I go out and I start running emergency procedures. My instructor comes out and goes, hey, I didn't expect you to be out here. I was looking inside for you. And I said, well, gentleman inside told me to come and run emergency procedures in here. And it was fantastic because, you know what? We run emergency procedures at our, at our house. You know, we're sitting on our couch. We close our eyes and we imagine running through these emergency procedures. Why not take the opportunity while you're waiting for your instructor to put your hands on the controls? Plane's off, not gonna hurt anything. If it says mixture off, bam, pull that mixture, right? If it says cabin heat defrosters are closed, bam, bam, do it, right? Run through it. If it's, you know, if it's something where, you know, you're running through a stall procedure, right? It doesn't have to be an exact emergency procedure because like you lost your engine or engine caught on fire. Okay, stall's happening, what do I do? Oh, nose down, full power, boom, right? And run that. Push the throttle forward. Don't just say it. Do it. So that was some good advice. And I, I'd like to push that on to you guys. And you know what? If you're ever sitting there waiting for your instructor and there's a plane available, why not hop in it? You're paying. You're paying to be there. You're paying big bucks to be there. Take advantage of it. So anyways, guys, that is it for episode five of the Aviation Podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a little bit different having the story in there with the Gimli Glider, but I think it's an important story. And let me know if you liked it. If you liked it, send me an email at theaviationpodcast at gmail.com and maybe we'll do more stories like this. There's tons of stories of Canadian aviation that we can go over and learn something from or even just reinforce what we're learning in training. So like always, guys, keep studying, keep learning, and keep becoming a better pilot. Until next time, I'm Dave, this is the Aviation Podcast, and keep the blue side up.